Welcome to today's podcast, Meeting Regulatory Expectations for AML and Sanctions Compliance. Recent laundromats confirm that criminals can still exploit money laundering and sanctions evasion mechanisms to move funds undetected. Financial firms face many challenges in trying to stem these flows, from ensuring a robust onboarding process, putting systems in place for ongoing reviews, and adopting tools for transaction monitoring. The convergence of AML, KYC, and sanctions also requires that firms take a holistic view of illicit finance. Regulators remain highly focused on enforcement in these areas, with heavy civil as well as criminal penalties for failure to comply. The stakes are high for companies to take a proactive approach to reduce their risk and prevent compliance breakdowns. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence interviews Beth Davey, a partner in the Financial Services and Financial Services Litigation and Investigations Groups and co-head of the Economic Sanctions and Financial Crime Group at Sullivan and Cromwell. Her practice focuses on bank regulation and supervision, regulatory enforcement matters, and internal investigations. Beth is widely recognized as a leading expert in the areas of AML and economic sanctions compliance and enforcement. She has represented numerous financial institutions in high-profile global investigations involving multiple U.S. government agencies, as well as public and non-public regulatory enforcement matters. She has also worked with trade associations and industry representatives on establishment of industry standards and guidelines in the AML and sanctions compliance area and in the evolution of heightened transparency in the international payment system. Beth was formerly a senior officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's legal department and bank supervision group involved in regulatory and enforcement matters. And with that, I'll turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David? Uh, Beth, first of all, it's a great honor and privilege, and thanks for spending some time uh, with us. And By way of context, uh, one of the uh, benefits of having been at Goldman Sachs was to work with you and to gain your counsel on a wide variety of issues related to the AML, KYC, and sanctions space. So it's great to catch up again. Uh, let me, I appreciate it. Let me start um, in terms of, you know, what people I think are most interested in, um, which is some of the trends that you're now seeing that pose particular challenges and raise uh, particularly important uh, points for firms to keep in mind as they think about their controls, their compliance infrastructure, and what regulators are expecting. And maybe we could just get a quick overview of the current landscape, and then we can drill down on some of the questions. Um, I guess in, from my perspective, um, in my practice, I, I focus a lot on investigations and enforcement matters. And so what we're seeing continuously is a focus on, um, you know, just really the basics of AML programs, transaction monitoring, KYC programs, looking across the organization and taking um, an a group-wide approach. Um, it's it's kind of surprising that that we're still focused on fundamentals in in many cases, but the regulators are are pressing very very hard um, on U.S. and non-U.S. banks that operate in the U.S. to um, to make sure that particularly transaction monitoring and sanctions compliance um, are up to the standards that they expect. Um, and so we're, we're continuing to see the use of uh, outside consultants, uh, monitors even, uh, to try to, um, you know, dig in even beyond what the examiners do to, um, to really, you know, take a look at whether the systems that are in place are adequate, whether there's proper documentation, whether the KYC programs are um, following the, the risk assessments and really identifying the risk of, risks of the customers. Um, the beneficial ownership rule, of course, is uh, adding a lot of complexity and also um, the need for continuous monitoring of customers is one of the key issues, um, I think, that uh, is a huge challenge um, because, you know, uh, one of the beneficial ownership rules uh, requirements is the fifth pillar, you know, where you have to now monitor uh, your, your customer continuously. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the, 
the biggest challenges we're seeing, but I think it's also one of the best ways to protect yourself um, in this environment. So that's a great uh, overview. And let's go into the a little bit into the beneficial ownership and the monitoring. So uh, if you look at the history of these regulations, there was always that uh, point of knowing who your customer was at the outset, but not necessarily having to be as diligent in terms of ongoing monitoring. And maybe you could share some perspective in terms of the regulatory expectations of the types of systems that um, regulators expect to have in place, the types of suspicious activity reports that um, they now expect to be filed and obviously this is a it's a big challenge because uh every individual bank may have just a piece of the puzzle of what a client is doing um uh, and with the other pieces being held by other institutions or possibly you know uh within jurisdictions that are less transparent but uh, are there certain sort of yardsticks that uh when you counsel clients that you explain to them that they you know should be keeping in mind in terms of how they are setting up or you know potentially enhancing their systems I think um, the challenge is uh, you know to as you said um, how do you kind of keep track of if your customer and the, the regulators have made it clear that they want you to have an, an understanding going in uh, of what your customer's expected activity would be, and to have kind of an overall profile of of what the characteristics of your customers that can form the basis for um, an assessment of the risk. And obviously that's going to consider a number of different factors, including um, the, the organizational structure of the, the customer, whether it's, you know, um, a, a privately held company, um, whether you can really whether it has a transparent ownership structure, uh, where it operates, um, what types of um, payments you would expect to see. And I think what's, what we've seen in, in, in the investigative um, arena is that we've seen a lot of banks who kind of take in customers, have an initial sense of what they're going to do, but it's very difficult to then, or, or they don't do as good a job of, um, watching the, whether the customer is actually doing what they said, um, because you know what you often see is is you do see shell companies that uh, uh, are operating out of different jurisdictions. Some of them offshore, some of them high risk, but some of them just you know the U.S. or the U.K. And they um, you know suddenly have a business or movements of funds that are completely inconsistent with what. Um, was said on day one, or you see uh, scenarios where they're moving money in and out very quickly. Um, and, you know, those are just sort of classic potential money laundering um, uh, scenarios that you should be picking up on a, you know, very quickly and uh, through your transaction monitoring systems and your periodic reviews of customers. Uh, so I, I think we see the regulators kind of looking at those types of scenarios and thinking, you know, how could you have missed this? You know, they they kind of take that attitude, and so it becomes extremely important to have a very robust um, periodic review process um, that is risk-based, obviously, but, you know, to constantly be aware of changes in the risk profile of your customer and whether or not they're operating in a way that's consistent with your expectations. So I just uh... – that to me is a very, very important takeaway and one that some of the enforcement actions have reflected. So I actually want to, maybe I can, um, sum up that, uh, for the audience, which is the importance of, we'll call it the intake process of when you're onboarding a client, understanding not only who they are, but what their investment activity is going to be. And investment activity, you also deals with uh, the flow of funds going in, going out of the account. And obviously, when 
it deviates from, you know, what has been set up at the beginning. Um, questions have to be asked. There has to be a squaring of the circle, a reconciliation of why things are changing. And to fail to do so and to document it and have a plausible explanation or rationale um, leaves you with a significant exposure in terms of how regulators will look at this if there is a problem. It also suggests that when you're onboarding a client, um, not only, again, who who they are and, you know, who the various beneficial owners are, but understanding and, we'll say, applying some common sense and reconciliation that what they're coming in to do at your institution actually does make sense and it is consistent with who they are and their history. Um, and it sounds a little elementary, Beth, but to your point, too often, um, you know, things happen along the way with the relationship and all of this is, you know, to the peril of the companies. But understanding at the initial onboarding and staying on top to make sure nothing's deviating and if it is, understanding the basis for the deviation. Is that a fair summation just in terms of uh, some practical advice? Yeah, I think so. And um, another point, you mentioned systems. Uh, another issue that has been coming up quite a bit is um, how can you ensure that if you identify a rogue customer, how do you ensure that they don't come back in to your organization with a new company? Um, and also, how do you identify, um, you know, this is particularly key for the sort of laundromat situations that we've seen, um, how do you identify uh, networks of companies that are acting together uh, through linked uh, uh, beneficial owners or they are operating from the same address or, you know, they have, um, you know, similar associated persons, um, you know, how can you how can your systems kind of identify those situations um, so that you're seeing the whole picture um, of, you know, the types of companies that are coming in? So uh, that's a great point, and maybe we can go into, you know, some of the databases and other things that regulators expect. What I would just emphasize for uh, people that beyond this being a sort of KYC sanctions issue, um, to the extent that there are hot issue IPOs uh, that banks are uh, involved in um, sort of running the books or have, have a role in the books, uh, it is not uncommon to see people opening up accounts and uh, under different names and different um, entity formations in order to get allocation to IPOs. And obviously there's a whole, you know, history to that. So there's a, a there's a variety of, of reasons for understanding who's behind the entities, et cetera. So Beth, as you're counseling, and I recognizing that you're often brought in, um, you know, for the investigation and remediation, what advice are you giving people in terms of how best to actually understand um, relationship mapping, interrelationships, uh, the principles behind the entities, et cetera? Um, the, the best way to to do that is to have uh, a very robust customer database that um, identifies, um, you know, beneficial owners and affiliated persons and companies, so that you and that is operates across your organization. I, I say that as if it's very easy to accomplish, but it's, it's one of the most challenging things that the banks have to face is especially larger banks, um, is having uh, a system that looks across the organization and can identify um, not just, you know, not just beneficial owners, but even the companies themselves, where they have accounts and where their subsidiaries have accounts and where their, um, you know, beneficial owners might show up somewhere else. So if you have a system that, you know, when you open a new account can kind of flag that, you you know have an account for the same company or the same UBO somewhere else that that's certainly ideal and some of the enforcement actions on KYC kind of almost assume that banks can have such a system even going back a number of years um, 
and the OCC in particular has, you know, pushed this quite hard, and the Fed. Um, uh, but you know, it's it's extremely diff difficult to accomplish, especially in a global organization where you may not even be able to share information across border about your customer relationships. But I think well, putting, that's, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, putting aside data privacy issues um, around cross-border, there is an operating assumption that regulators have um, that the ability to mine data um, is something that companies do very, very well. They do it for marketing purposes, sales purposes, um, client development, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there there is that assumption that institutions – not only can, but they do mind um, customer and uh, sort of outreach efforts uh, very, very carefully. And there are a number of things um, that I think the regulators are expecting, and maybe get your perspective on this, which is, you know, to the extent that IP addresses are coming in from a, you know, showing potential common ownership or relationships, uh, contact people. Um, who may be executing on various orders, uh, common mailing addresses, telephone numbers, uh, that type of thing. Things that might indicate that entities are not in fact independent of each other, but in fact have some kind of common nexus. And, um, so beyond the research that one might be doing through various commercial databases, whether it's, you know, Dow Jones or it's Bloomberg or people are using RDC or, you know, other types of databases, the expectation is there may be data inside your institution that you need to mine to possibly connect the dots. I, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, what we've seen in the investigative context is uh, not just same IP addresses, telephone numbers, PO boxes, but also even the same incorporator. Uh, there are, you know, the the big names in the, the uh, incorporation world, but then there are also offshore names that, you know, kind of tend to be linked to money laundering operations. And so, you know, you can even see the same address of one of those organizations being used multiple times as the proxy address for your client. Um, and, you know, so that's something that you would really want to be able to pick up. Um, and, you know, obviously if you see an address that is just a false address or, a you know, doesn't comport with what you expect to see for your client, um, and then you see that multiple times, you know, huge red flags. It's a great point. And just in terms of how um, people, you know, begin to think about what they need to do proactively, um, so beyond the usual watch lists and sanctions lists, and, you know, which is, I'll call that the basic blocking and tackling, mm -hmm. as uh, issues can arise because there's been a wiki-type leak posted, whether, you know, dealing with, you know, the Panama Papers or things that come out of the Bahamas and et cetera. Um, organizations, I think you would agree, have to be proactive in running those things down and seeing if there's some common names, common addresses, entity names and things like that that could be relevant and not waiting for things to appear on you know, a, a sanctions list. And maybe you could just comment a little bit about how regulators expect people to be proactive in this area as well. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think one of the um, issues that you're really identifying is um, how can uh, how can you really protect yourself from, um, like, sanctions evaders, for example. Um, you know, you... And, and also, you know, just uh, from from money laundering organizations like the Russian laundromat or the other laundromats, um, there is a lot out in the public about, you know, some of the names. 
there's a lot out in the public about actions that, for example, DOJ has taken against sanctions evaders and their related companies. Uh, they don't always name every company, but there's a good amount of information that's publicly available. Uh, and so it's very important to, um, you know, as part of your, maybe as part of your investigative unit, to have access to that information and be able to use it um, proactively to look for situations. So if you take, for an example, if OFAC designates someone for being a sanctions evader or um, for being part of a, an international, uh, transnational criminal organization, those are names that you might not just add to your filter, but you might actually look back to see if you have activity for those names because you know, you've got this indicator, the government has said, that they believe that you know this person or this company is part of an, a criminal organization. Now that may not be true, you know, designations are removed sometimes, um, but it's such a red flag that you know you um, it, it's a good idea to kind of take that information into um, your investigative unit and um, see if you might have had transactions relating to them. So that's what you seem to be underscoring is, uh, I guess, surprise, surprise, that um, certain information is uh, provided by the government to public media sources and even some social media sources. Uh, they do it at times very purposefully to give some alerts, but the importance of staying proactive around uh, the increasing number of open sources of information. Yeah. Uh, so well in advance of, you know, an official pronouncement that somebody is on the sanctions list or, you know, an enforcement action is being brought, uh, the expectation on institutions to sort of read the tea leaves, be proactive, continuously take in information and see whether there are points of contact. And obviously that in turn may drive the reporting of a suspicious activity report. Yes, and I, and I think, you know, depending on your risk profile, you may be um, wanting to do this at a much deeper level, you know. So if you have, you know, wealth management division, for example, that has a lot of, um, you know, private investment companies or, you know, uh, privately held companies as clients, you know, that's, you're, you're going to want to make sure that if, if, something like the Panama Papers comes out or um, or the names associated with some of the laundromats that you can check those names against your customer list um, to see if you have uh, any cause for concern. Just because someone's on a list doesn't mean that they are associated with um, whatever's being uh, discussed, um, particularly Panama Papers, because that was such a broad list. But, um, you know, Many banks were kind of identified um, or associated with those lists in the press, and you know uh, it was imperative for them to to get to the bottom of whether or not they should be concerned about any of those clients uh, if they were in fact clients. Um, so I, I think that's something they have to you know really stay on top of and be able to tell the regulators, you know, we know about this. We are proactively looking at it, um, and not wait for the inquiry to come in the door. And indeed, just to maybe underscore further the points you're making about regulatory expectation, when these leaks do occur, and then there's press coverage around it, and obviously this was not uh, Panama Papers. All, all these things are not just simply leaks, but there's a certain curation process that goes on with. Um, uh, various global journalists were highlighting this, driving the stories, uh, in turn bringing things to you know the forefront of, um, of what I refer to as the regulatory consciousness. Um, but then regulators, in turn, you know, are looking at the institutions and saying, often unreasonably, but with the expectation that this is there's a, a light switch somewhere inside the institution that can immediately identify this, but they were, they were, there was an expectation that within, whether it's 48 hours or 72 hours or one week, 
to come back and identify any and all accounts that you have related to these uh, to these entities. So um, what's important, uh, what I'm hearing, you know, Beth, you're saying is that organizations should not wait for that that call to action. They have to be constantly attuned to the types of information that are out there in the public domain, the possibility that this could become part of, you know, regulatory interest and that they're, you know, looking at these things and figuring out are there points of connectivity and relationships here that matter. It, it just underscores the importance of having an investigative unit within the organization that uh, can get access to data and to have systems in place to allow data to be queried in a, you know quickly and um, accurately. And that isn't something that's necessarily um, across the you know banks don't necessarily or financial institutions don't all have those types of systems. Um, so it's but it, it just shows you how important it is to be able to quickly respond, you know, if something comes out or if you get an inquiry to be able to query your systems, do we have this as a customer or do we see transactions involving this entity? Um, and that can sometimes take an inordinate amount of time. Um, so it's really important to upgrade your systems to be able to do that. And while this is a little bit uh, further afield of the traditional AML KYC sanctions space, obviously there are a number of groups who are very active um, socially uh, around different causes. And while this may not be a regulatory exposure, being sensitive to NGOs and other activist groups who are highlighting certain issues and certain business and commercial relationships and transactions. Um, I'm sure, Beth, you would agree that that, you know, is also part of the equation in the current environment. Yeah, I mean, I I guess that's right. Um, yeah. And I say this simply because very often regulators will pay attention after something, you know, becomes uh, important. Uh, so, for example, I'll give, I'll give an example out of the uh, public domain, which uh, the New York Times, I think it was, maybe it was the Wall Street Journal, but broke a story about um, uh, illegally mined gold, uh, referencing gold that um, was mined potentially without appropriate licensing, that was not appropriately sourced, that was uh, violative of environmental rules and certain labor standards and human standards and in, in so-called conflict zones and how some of that may have found its way um, into iPhone production um, and the Apple supply chain. And while there's a um, clearly some NGO groups were involved in some of that research, uh, invariably it, it did attract, it is attracting regulatory attention. And, you know, to the extent that um, one thinks laterally and broadly, about how issues are raised uh, and when do regulators pay attention. They have their own sources of information, but sometimes they do draw from public sources, whether this is the media or the NGOs or, you know, various protests that are going on around a particular issue. It's important for institutions to keep that in mind that uh, uh, there are a lot of drivers in the current marketplace, including, uh, you know, various WikiLeaks as well. Uh, Beth, can I pivot a little bit because I'd love to get your perspective because of the importance of beneficial ownership and the fact that um, accounts are opened with appropriately filed and formed uh, legal entities, but around which there's often um, a lack of transparency. And um, it's particularly difficult, and I think we can all express them, a high degree of empathy for financial institutions and others that, you know, have to get be beyond this and behind it. And um, just sort of wondering first if I could start with, you know, what you're seeing as some of the, you know, some of the challenges because there are 
various jurisdictions and their various uh, legal entities that are accepted in the commercial world, but from a beneficial ownership and KYC perspective, are often difficult to know who's behind and who's involved, et cetera. And so maybe some perspective on the challenges that your clients are facing in this regard and that actually would like to take it a step further in terms of what can be done. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think that when you're talking about um, a shell company, for example, and how do you identify uh, a shell company um, uh, and how do you really determine who's behind it, I think that's uh, the, the challenge is that there are many jurisdictions which will allow, continue to allow for the incorporation of companies or the formation of LLCs or LLPs, et cetera, with, without um, identifying the owners. Um, there can be proxy directors, proxy owners, incorporators, and um, there are clearly lots of different companies who will or individuals who will put themselves uh, forward um, to play those roles. Um, so, you know, how you even know whether to ask the question, uh, who, who is, is there someone else behind this, uh, is, is one of the biggest challenges that I see anyway. Um, and, you know, there can be multiple levels of, of those companies. There can be trusts involved. And um, there's no real clear uh, way to uh, really satisfy yourself that you've gotten to the bottom of one of these situations. And, you know, this is a big issue in, in sanctions, obviously, with the Russian sanctions and um, when the oligarchs were, uh, the various oligarchs were first designated and some of the attempts to move ownership of some of the assets uh, into other types of companies. Very difficult to parse through um, how do you determine uh, whether there's been an adequate transfer. Um, you know, how do you look at a trust uh, for OFAC purposes? How do you, you know, determine who's the, who's really controlling it? And, um, you know, so those, I, I see those as some of the biggest challenges, um, if that's what you were Yeah, asking exactly about. right. And um, many of these entities are often formed in jurisdictions that are viewed as Western, um, whether it's flying under the Queen's flag or incorporated in the state of Delaware. Um, right. <laughs> um, where a number of... Um, Questionable characters have been able to successfully form their corporations or LLCs, and at least to me, this is based upon you know many conversations with clients and you know institutions that are trying to do the right thing. This has been a, a very, very—I'll uh, use the, the term—shift uh, in the assumption of risk. That this becomes the bank's risk, as opposed to. Um, the state or the countries or the, you know, law firms, uh, for that matter, who are involved in forming or registering these entities. And I'm, uh, without, you know, I'm not trying to draw you into a you know, political discussion, but uh, I have a personal view, which is, you know, the time and the ability to get the information that regulars, uh, certain regulars care about is at the inception of the formation when these things are being registered with certain state authorities, paperwork is being filled out, and yet the questions are not being asked, the certifications are not being requested, the research is not being done. And um, you know, it's interesting, you, you couldn't possibly get a driver's license under a, you know, at least legally, under, under a, a pseudonym, a LLC, or anything else, and for very, very good reasons. Yes, these entities are able to register without there being an appropriate, uh, being appropriate disclosure, affirmations, confirmations, and I'll call it, you know, some basic, uh, governmental diligence, uh, around these things. And it's, um, strikes me that 
in the battle against illicit finance and financial fraud, etc., and sanctions that the individual states, the various jurisdictions, the broader federal government uh, not getting that information uh, when these things are being formed, you know, similar to how not-for-profits get registered and get their tax exemption, uh, is we're, we're, we're missing something by pushing this down to the banks, both in terms of the efficiency and the efficacy of uh, the information that's needed. And so I don't know whether you have some thoughts about that, um, particularly in light of the challenges that I know your clients have been facing. I, I don't disagree with that, David, but I think the one thing that I would challenge you on is the inception part, because I think without um, requiring updating, uh, you're really going to miss uh, the the boat. I agree. I agree. Yep. At formation, you're you know that's when you do have the proxies, and you know it's it's later down the road when the money comes in and the real owners come in. And, you know, so that's where the banks have uh, the ability to get information uh, updated. And um, if you were going to put it onto the states or the jurisdictions, it would need to have an updating requirement uh, in order to be effective. Right. I, I agree. And, look, there are annual registrations, right, that go on or re-registrations and things like that. I agree. I just, it, you know, the, the main thing, you know, to the extent um, we're all in agreement that these things matter um, in terms of the integrity of the system and, and access to illicit proceeds and all things, it it, it is just and you're watching because you're you're brought in when they're repeated. Look, there've been you know institutional failures in this regard. Right. Uh, the real question here is whether the entities, uh, maybe better phrase, whether they alone can bear you know, the responsibility to ensure efficacy uh, around this issue. And I, so I think, is there – yeah. I was just going to say I think this is where, you know, our discussion before um, comes in because, you know, what, whatever the banks are being told, whatever the states are being told, there's always the ability to obfuscate by using a front of some sort. And, you know, so it, it's the – it's really the monitoring of the activity and um, even looking to see where the instructions are coming from on the accounts right. where you can start to see what's really happening with that entity. Right. And there's, an, look, there's an, another operating premise I think the regulars have, which is that the, the banks are best positioned to yeah. know who they're dealing with and to understand the use of the funds. And I would just push back a little bit there, which is that um, there are various points. You know, first of all, the government always has some information that's risk relevant that the institution sure. does not have. Right? <laughs> uh, and, and some of that comes from the intelligence gathering. Some comes from, uh, you know, ongoing enforcement and investigation activity, cooperation, wiretaps, et cetera. So there's an asymmetrical quality to who 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 has the most relevant information, you know, and that may vary from time to time. Uh, but what the assumption, you know, that regulars have when they bring the enforcement actions or do the examinations is that you, the institution, are the best position. And I'm merely suggesting, you know, this look, I'll be the first to say this is this comes out of you know. My experience at Goldman and working closely with you and your firm on a variety of matters is that um, the notion that people can be up and running with, you know, companies that have been incorporated, whether it's in Montana or Delaware or, you know, out of the Caymans or whatever, and everything, you know, the T's across the I's are dotted and, you know, there are appropriate uh, documents of registration and yet some of the basic questions have not been filled out that regulators care about and the mm -hmm. basic attestations at least the process could the overall process could be I think uh, greatly enhanced and addressed by uh, by acknowledging that oversight and that there is an opportunity 
And so that's uh, just one of the points. Yeah. So, Beth, let me uh, maybe uh, in the few minutes we have remaining, um, what I think would be really very insightful for people is to sort of understand because you have been called into countless, countless uh, situations. And I know you prefer to go in to the institutions before there's a problem and counsel and, you know, sort of do the, you know, bit of a uh, audit checklist of what's being done and keep firms out of trouble in the first instance. But you are and your firm, you know, it's Elwood Cromwell are often called in during the hair on fire moments. And maybe you can um, take people through what's, you know, either in, on paper that you have or in your head about what institutions actually have to start to do when they do detect that there's been an issue or a problem, or maybe the regulators have advised as much. And again, this is in the, I guess, the area of uh, minimizing the damage, minimizing the harm, and, you know, making sure that there is resiliency in the institution to go forward. You know, right. overall, I think that overall my, my response would be that um, the best approach uh, is to, you know, quickly uh, lock things down, quickly, um, you know, have the right people on the ground to um, to investigate and pull whatever information um, is necessary to understand whatever the problem is. Um, to to have those teams set up ahead of time so that you are flexible and resilient and uh, can can act quickly, and to be um, you know open and transparent with your regulators um, at, at you know at the appropriate time um, to be able to you know go in and say we have identified the problem, we have. Um, gathered the information, evaluated it, uh, we are reporting it as appropriate, and we are taking care of filling the hole. Um, that's, you know, I think overall that would be my response, but uh, in a, you know, if there's specific types of situations that you're focused on, maybe I could give it more. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, and, and having watched uh, Selvin Cromwell and you in action, but um, if I can maybe add a little bit. So, number one, you know, making sure people do not panic. Uh, <laughs> your point about, right, which is easier said than done, but making sure that documents and records are locked down so nothing is lost in the process. Right. Making sure the reporting constituencies and, you know, in the current environment of um, global business, there are often a number of regulators that need to be advised, and if anyone is left out, they, they often don't take kindly to that. Right? And, right. You see, and, and that's on the state and local areas. So to sort of know so who the regulatory reporting regime is, and I thought your point was very important about sort of uh, almost knowing what to do in advance of the crisis. So whether it's a tabletop exercise or or two, but having gone through a drill of what a, what fire drills can look like and whom you need around the table, um, and you know, and sort of, you know how decisions have to be made. The efforts to protect attorney-client privilege. I know, you know, you guys have been at the vanguard of thinking about that. Not that you necessarily assert the privilege, but you know, at least to try to maintain. Um, that as well as an important aspect. Um, earlier in the conversation, you highlighted the importance of an investigation unit. And uh, so people who actually know where the records are, know what they're doing, and are sort of independent of the business areas uh, so they can work across divisions if need be, across geographies if need be, and certainly have a skill set uh, that's necessary to pull things together, whether these are electronic records or to identify the people, you know, who are uh, involved. Uh, the ability to keep, I guess, you know, appropriate constituencies advised, and that's having gone through, you know, going through uh, SNC's, you know, Crisis 101 
uh, Clint, but the, uh, but the importance of, uh, communicating with both the internal constituencies, recognizing also there may be a board of directors that, you know, needs to be apprised. Um, there may be, there may or may not be media inquiries or at least the possibility of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be public entity, you know, shareholders, you know, when the letter and, uh, or, or the communications and being very, very smart about what you convey and what you don't convey. And there, I'm not going to go into the rules of the road of this, but, you know, certainly you don't, um, over promise and under, and ultimately under deliver in terms of what something is. So something may feel right and facile and, uh, helpful near term, but long term may be, uh, damaging. And, uh, then what I was going to, um, say is the timeliness of taking these things seriously and keeping people posted along the way and making sure you are bottoming things out as quickly as possible. And, and one thing we haven't really talked about, David, is just how these investigative teams uh, need to be from different disciplines. And, you know, the, as, as we talked uh, about previously, the, you know, the money laundering and sanctions evasion um, uh, typologies are now so similar, um, and the, mon- the professional money launderers are being used uh, not just to launder the proceeds of drug trafficking, but also, um, you know, try- moving money for shang- sanctioned regi- regimes, um, you know, moving money, um, uh, you know, in and out of uh, countries with uh, exchange controls, you know. Uh, so there's there's really convergence of the sanctions expertise and the anti-money laundering expertise, and it's very important for institutions to have uh, the cross-fertilization and ability to uh, bring those teams together um, to to really identify um, where a money laundering uh, investigation may involve sanctions or vice versa. And, um, you know, we're seeing that convergence um, in in all of our investigations right now. So it's it's a very interesting um, time. That's a uh, great point. And obviously, uh, beyond the cross-denominational skill set of the investigation team, obviously, yeah. there's a huge technology component to that, or it needs yeah. to be part of that team um, so that data can be gleaned, records can be maintained and pulled, and you sort of know where to look. So I think that's a, a great, great point. So, Beth, if I have five minutes more, can I stretch this uh, to see if I can, uh, if you have any thoughts about uh, cryptocurrency and uh, the regulatory views uh, on that and the tie-ins with um, money laundering and um, sanctions. And actually, I'll, I'll just go back uh, to underscore another point about you know, the convergence between sanctions and AML, but also uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and mm-hmm. issues around export controls, all right, and uh, right. the movement of things. It, it really is one wall of wax, uh, and people have to understand that. So I think that's a, a great point. But uh, right, I'll go back. Uh, thoughts about cryptocurrencies and the AML sanctions focus, uh, noting that various uh, regimes that are being sanctioned have talked about creating their own cryptocurrencies to, you know, uh, both support the some of their commercial activities um, as well as uh, bringing funds into their country. And, you know, various points of time, Venezuela talked about a cryptocurrency backed by oil. Iran has done, has had similar you know, pronouncements. So any any thoughts, perspectives on um, on the emerging forms of currency or alternative assets? I think that um, this this area is um, extremely high risk for, um, you know, all of the things that we are concerned about in the payment space. 
uh, the traditional payment space. So if you think about all the work that's been done over the last 20 years, 15, 20 years on transparency and payment systems to try to give institutions and governments the best opportunity they can to identify who is moving the funds. Um, all of that is out the window when it comes to cryptocurrency, um, at least the way it's, it's kind of initially developed. Um, it's very difficult to, as, as I understand it, and I am not an expert in this area, but um, it's very difficult to, even if you want to identify who is behind uh, the trading, uh, to be clear or sure that you've identified the right person. Um, and so it's it's easy to mask, uh, you know, where the trading is occurring, so you can be operating out of a sanctioned country. Um, it's also easy to use, just as it is with regular payments, um, you know, uh, fronts to to do the the trading, um, and the money moves extremely quickly and 24/7. Uh, so. Um, you know, it's it would it presents a huge law enforcement challenge uh, to the extent that these uh, systems are um, becoming more and more prevalent. Um, to the extent they really develop um, it beyond our traditional payment systems, uh, all of the controls that are in place, the the regulatory regime, the the legal protections, are not in existence. Um, and so, you know, what what I see in the, in my little window on this, which is pretty small, uh, is now that they are becoming more prevalent, um, the governments are trying to impose the traditional regulatory regime on them, and um, and that's proving fairly difficult, uh, you know, because those exchanges or those um, you know, participants in the market are having to um, having to change the way that they do business and to conform to the regulatory regime, and they're losing some of their constituency because they, you know, people don't people who use that type of currency sometimes they you know they don't want to be part of the traditional payment system so. Uh, for good or bad reasons, um, and so it's it's a very interesting uh, dynamic that that I see from my vantage point on it. Um, and you know, I don't know what the solution is. I I think um, I think it would be a very dangerous thing if some of these countries established a cryptocurrency as a national currency. I think that view is shared by a number of leading regulators. Okay, uh, so. Beth, uh, first of all, thank you, as always, for great perspectives, insights, and uh, I'll call it pragmatic advice for institutions. Uh, more to come, and uh, particularly with uh, all the experimentation at FinTech, uh, much of which is based around the payment system and uh, uh, oftentimes circumventing uh, the traditional uh, forms of settling transactions and moving money around the world. Uh, so thanks, and look forward to uh, another conversation in the near future. But truly appreciate it, and, and this has been uh, terrifically helpful and insightful. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a Rain member. Rain members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.